Amen. Well, hey, grab a copy of God's Word and turn with me to Mark chapter 9. We are going to pick back up here um, in Mark chapter 9 as we've been going through the Gospel of Mark. And if you don't have a, a physical copy, grab your, grab your phone, let, let, whatever you've got, grab, turn that, go with me to Mark chapter 9. Um, as we jump into the text here, uh, in addition to these four summer linkers, you've also maybe heard us call them gin senders. I have the privilege of overseeing 44 uh, gin senders in the city. They're all departing tomorrow. Um, and, and one of the joys that I get from spending time with them um, is that they all want to make their life count. Uh, they want to do something great for God and for the kingdom of God. And so as we jump into the text today, we're going to be challenged to think about what is greatness? What is a life that matters, a life that counts? And in many ways, this passage that we're going to jump in here is, is, is Jesus unpacking more what he had already taught the disciples back in Mark chapter 8 about what it means to be a follower of Jesus and, and the call to discipleship. We saw that in Mark 8, verse 34. Jesus told them, and he said, if, um, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So the way of Jesus is paved with self-denial, taking up your cross, and a centrality of following him in all of life. And we're going to see Jesus today unpack a little bit more. It's like he's bringing his disciples along and saying, hey, let me tell you more about that, what it means to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. So let's go, Mark chapter 9, um, and I'm going to first just start here in verse 30 and read through 41. The Word of God says this, they went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the, the saying and were afraid to ask him. And so they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing along the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest? And he sat down and he called the 12. And he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. As we reflect on these words from the Gospel of Mark, it may be tempting to think that these are just um, a disorganized collection um, of sayings or teachings, but there's really some consistent themes that run through this. And I believe the main truth that Jesus wants us to get in this first section is this. 
Humble service is the way to true greatness. Humble service is the way to true greatness. Here's where Jesus starts in verses 30 through 32. It says, as they went from there, he was teaching his disciples. And what was he teaching them? This is the second time that he's, he's talked about what's to come in his life. The first one was back in Mark chapter 8. And he says, here's what's about to happen. The Son of Man himself, he's going to be delivered into the hands of men. There's an intentional passive here. He's going to be delivered into which may raise a question for us, like who's delivering him? And we'll come back to that in a second. But he's gonna be delivered into the hands. They're gonna kill him. And then after he's killed, after three days, he will rise. And so um, what, what Jesus is, is, is reminding them of before he jumps into teaching on greatness and servant is his life. Because foundationally, to, to be a disciple is to be a follower of Jesus. And so we've gotta get what it means about Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And so here's the key point here is we look at this, this passive. I believe it's a divine passive. Like, yes, well, like, who killed Jesus? Like, in one sense, we could say, like, I killed Jesus. Like, he went and he died for my sin. We could say that the Israelites, the Jews killed Jesus. They're like, crucify him, crucify him. But in a very real sense, we can say, God killed Jesus. Like, God is the one who gave Jesus. For God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. So when we look at the cross, when we look at the life, death, and resurrection, we see this, that salvation is possible because God gave his one and only son to be killed that you and I might have life. But, but Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are not just for the theological truth for us understanding how to be saved, he is also an example and a perfect picture of humility and service. Jesus' announcement here not only predicts his fate, but he's, he's implicitly telling his disciples, this is what it means to be a follower of me. It is gonna be a life of service. And and if you were to read through the rest of the New Testament, you would see some similar themes continue up. We're, we're gonna see this on um, later on in Mark, where Jesus is gonna say, I came not to be served, but to serve and give my life as a ransom. We see that his death is a picture, an example for us to follow. Paul picks this up in Philippians 2, a very familiar passage. And he says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God, a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. What did he do? He took the form of a servant. He was born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself and became obedient even to death on a cross. No one has humbled themselves more than Jesus. He went from heaven to the cross. And so this is why, why foundational to discipleship is this phrase, to deny self. And at the heart of that is a humility. Growth in humility begins at the cross. If you're today, you're like, man, 
I want to grow in humility. The cross has got to be central to that pursuit. And so here's, here's what's ironic. This passage is juxtaposed with the following verses, and it reveals a huge contrast. You see Jesus' humility in going to be killed, and you see the disciples talking about who's going to be the greatest. The disciples are like, man, we like who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be recognized? And Jesus is like, do you not get it? And so let me just give you a quick definition um, of humility. Tim Keller describes it this way. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but of yourself less and Jesus more. You get that? It's not thinking less of yourself, but it's thinking of yourself less and Jesus more. Look, does anybody need this? Look, I'm there. Like, my biggest problem in life is John Chastine. Like, the sin inside of me wants to say, I love John Chastine. I want, like, I want to make much of John Chastine. And so the cost of discipleship is John Chastine's got to die and I need more of Jesus. And so that's, as you think about being a follower of Jesus, humility is foundational to living a life of service and pleasing, honoring to God. And so then he, he gives us a, an object, some teaching and an object lesson. So it says they came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, it, it's possible that this was Peter's house. Go back and look at Mark 1.29. And, and so Jesus asked them, hey, what were you discussing along the way? Like, as I listen to this question, I wonder, like, what's going on here? Um, like, was Jesus kind of like a parent? Like, at times, I'm just listening. Like, I can overhear. Like, my, my kids have no clue that I'm listening in. You know, you're just like, kind of like peering and over. Like, maybe you're driving the car, and you're just kind of, they don't think you're listening, but you're hearing the conversation. Like, was that Jesus? Like, they're walking, and he's just, or is it possibly just a reference to, hey, Jesus being fully God knew exactly what they we're talking about. Either way, I would just raise this question, like, why were they discussing greatness? You ever think about that? Like, we, we, we know that they were discussing greatness, but why? I mean, one possibility is that, is that we saw a few weeks ago, who does Jesus take up with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, right? Like, he's got Peter, James, and John. Maybe there was a conversation on, like, man, man, I'm kind of getting left out here. Like, Peter, James, and John are, are, are in this inner circle with Jesus, but what about the rest of us? Maybe it was a result of uh, humiliation over their failed exorcism. Like, hey, we, we couldn't cast this, this demon out. And so, like, there's a question on who is the greatest. Maybe it's, hey, Jesus has been talking. They're like, man, hey, Jesus has kind of said this twice now, that he's going to die. I wonder who's going to take over, like, when he dies. Who knows? Like, it could have been a combination of those, but their silence is telling. What's clear is they have remained deaf to what Jesus has taught them about true greatness. I mean, and so he continues in, in, in light of their silence, and he says this. Verse 35, he sat down and he called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. Let's hit pause here. 
First, I want you to notice something here. Jesus doesn't critique their pursuit of greatness. In fact, I think God's put within us a desire to want to make our life count. To, 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 to like, we look to the end, like, I think most of us are like, man, I want to do something with my life. I don't want to waste my life. I, whether it's, it's greatness, but man, I want to make my life count. But here's what happens. Sin distorts that pursuit of greatness or that pursuit to want to matter, do something with our life. And here's what it does. Pride distorts it because in our greatness, we want to be, we don't want to just do great. We want to be known as great. Our joy comes from others praising us. Or, or maybe arrogance. We want to be greater than someone else. My pursuit of greatness is distorted because I'm comparing and looking at everyone else, and I want to be first. I want to be the greatest. And let me just give you a few questions, diagnostic questions that you can just simmer on this week. Are you upset at work if you're not praised for your service or work? And I'm not just saying like if the answer is always yes to that, but like that's a question to wrestle with. Like when I'm not praised, when somebody doesn't acknowledge something that I did, like how does that affect me deep down in my heart? What about this? Do you long or seek credit for what others have done? Like, do you want that? Others have done it, but you're like, man, I, I want that credit. Or here's another one. Do you think you have something valuable to say about almost everything? If we are gonna be disciples that are growing in true greatness, pride must be crushed in our lives. So what is true greatness? Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. True greatness is this. It's the willingness to be last as opposed to be first so that others could be second, third, fourth, fifth, whatever. Jesus says, this is greatness. You be last and you be servant of all. It's a striving to serve as many people as you possibly can. And then he, he does an object lesson. Here's what he does. So he grabs a child and he puts him in the midst and he embraces this child. And he says this, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Why does he embrace a child? Why, what's, what's the point of this object lesson? Here's the point. That child can do nothing for you you're probably not gonna receive praise from a child. No child's gonna say, mom, dad, you're the greatest parents. Like, maybe, no, no probably they are. But I mean, th I think about who spends a lot of time with teachers. Te we got a lot of teachers, I love our teachers here who like invest um, in kids. Um, like, you might get notes from parents, right? But how often do, do you get a kid that just says, man, thank you for your, man, the many night times you stayed up late at night to, to like teach me well. You're not gonna receive, for the most part, praise from a child. And in fact, most of them probably take for granted your care of them. 
They're not gonna make a big deal of you serving them. Most of even your own kids don't even recognize the sacrifices you make for them. Like the older that you get and you become a parent, you realize, wow, my, my parents sacrificed a lot. So here's the point. If you want to be great, look for ways to serve people who have no standing in this world. Care for those no one else cares for. Find somebody to serve that can do nothing for you. And don't do that by like, pride can distort that, right? We can go do that and pride can completely wreck that. But do that as a way to, to grow in greatness and following Jesus. Children more than any other kind of people prove how great you really are. Do you live to serve or do you live to be praised? Now, I want to press in a little bit more here, though. It's not just receiving a child. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name. And what happens? You receive Jesus, and not only Jesus, you get the Father. And so the highest pursuit here in serving is not actually the child. The highest pursuit is I want God. You serve in Jesus' name to get God. Jesus isn't just calling you to live a life of self-sacrifice. He's calling you to reject man's praise and run after God. You serve children in order to receive God. And you know what? When you serve this way, that's what, our, that's what, a, that's what a kid needs to see is that your utmost pursuit actually isn't the kid, it's God. And then we continue in 38 through 41 here. And you, now, you're like, how does this all connect? I'll help us out here. So then John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. Which raises some questions like, must all disciples belong to us? Do, do you hear John's, the error in his statement here? They're not following us. It's almost a complete disregard of the lessons from this previous story. John comes across as showing entitlement and privilege and exclusion. While John is upset that he's not following us, his concern should have been, is he following Jesus? Because it's not about us, it's about Jesus. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, John, like, don't stop him. No one who does a mighty work in my name will soon be after to speak evil of me. It's not about you, it's about me. For the one who's not against us is for us. And then the third reason, that those fours there, F-O-R, four, four, four. He's, he's given the reasons why. The, the last one, for truly I say to you, whoever gives a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Here's what's ironic. The disciples are telling this man to stop doing something that they couldn't even do in the last chapter. They failed. And he's like, man, they need to stop. So as we wrap up this section, do you want a marker to evaluate your health and maturity as a follower of Jesus? 
What Jesus gives us here is one of the key markers, one of the key pursuits of a maturing disciple of Jesus. Maturing disciples of Jesus serve with intentional love. And I want to give you three areas right now just to think about it. We serve with intentional love in the home, in the church, and in the city. Just think about it, it in your homes. A consistent pursuit of this would breathe life into your homes. I'm here to serve my wife. I'm here to serve my spouse. You know what? Here's one of the challenges in my home. I know we got some maybe young, some teenagers in here. You know, consistently it's, hey, who's gonna r- ride in the front seat? Like, what if, as, as I'm teaching my kids to follow Jesus, it's like, put me in the back, Dad, because I wanna be like Jesus. God, cultivate humility in me. At the dinner table, it's like, who can sit by mom? Nobody cares about Dad. It's like, I wanna sit by mom, and I'm like, Man, what's going on here? And I'm trying to teach my kids, you're missing the point. Jesus has wanted to teach you, serve, serve, serve. Write down right now. What is one way you can serve in the home today as a way to show how great Jesus is? Maybe say, God, I need you to cultivate humility in me. God, show me how to serve in my home, in the church. I'm just gonna do a tangible example of like what we just looked at here. We might ask, what would, it, what would be the positions of service in the church that would be last of all? I'm just gonna like, here we go. You probably know, very few of you probably know who sets up and tears down on a given Sunday. The venue team gets no praise. The people serving right now in Redemption Kids, nobody probably knows who's in the nursery room who's in the toddler room or the pre-K. Those kids are not gonna praise them. Meg's back here. Like there's plenty of opportunity. Let me say this. You may say, you know what? I don't love kids, but I wanna grow in humility. So Meg, will you put me in kids because I'm wanting God to cultivate this in my life. We'll take you. How can you serve in this city? For some reason, I, I had this reflection yesterday. I'm glad of just preaching this text and thinking about it like, what if your neighbors knew you as the one who was just a servant? When, when they needed something, when they're traveling to Maine for a getaway, and they're like, hey, I need you. Would you, would you help, help me with a few things around the house? Like to, to so like initiate and be a servant in your neighborhood, that, that God would open up opportunities to just, man, I wanna make Jesus known in my city. I'm gonna do that through serving. What about this? Think about your workplace, where you work. Most of you spend the majority of your time in your workplace. God, how, how can I serve my coworkers? Think of the least of them, not your boss who might give you a raise. Think of the one who meant nobody is gonna praise at my workplace. Go serve them. Maturing disciples serve with intentional love in the home, in the church, and in the city. Let's look at this last section now. 42 through 50. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. The second truth I wanna share with you is this. Self-denial is the way to eternal life. There's some very graphic language used in this passage. And I believe it's to show us the cost and serious nature of discipleship. Jesus warns of sin's danger to others and sin's danger to ourselves. And in each case, the danger is extreme. So in verse 42, what we first see here is sin's danger to others. He says, whoever calls us one of these little ones. This, verse 42 is like a hinge verse. And it connects up with verse 41. Um, and, and it repeats a similar thought. So ver, verse 41 is, hey, whatever's done to a follower of Jesus, good or bad, is done to Jesus himself. That's the point there. So um, verse 41 is the positive. You do good and you're gonna be rewarded. Verse 42 is the negative. You cause them to stumble and as a result, you are punished. And so the little ones here, is, he's not referring to kids here. That, that's almost a link to the previous section. The little ones here, he says, one of these little ones who believe in me, it's just a, another way to say disciples. He's talking about his disciples. Whoever causes one of my disciples to sin. And what does he say here? He says, it'd be better for a great millstone to be hung around your neck. This, this imagery here is maybe to, to help you out would be as if you put some cement shoes on and you were just hurled into the sea, right? Like that, that's the picture that he's after here. And the imagery is dreadful. Drowning is a horrible form of death. So like, what's this warning all about? Some commentators suggest that Jesus here is still addressing pride and that this watery grave was a graphic way for Jesus to convey God's wrath against spiritual pride. So not only should disciples watch their own lives we're responsible for making sure we don't inhibit, injure, or destroy the faith of another disciple. I am my brother's keeper. I am my sister's keeper. So we see sin's danger to others. We also see sin's danger to ourselves. That begins in verse 43. Now I wanna draw your attention to a footnote. At the end of verse 43, there's a footnote number six. You may, uh, looking at your text here, you're like, hey, where's verse 44 and where's verse 46? So that textual footnote there, number six, says this. Some manuscripts add verses 44 and 46, which are identical with verse 48. So what does verse 48 say? Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. 
Basically, that phrase is repeated in some manuscripts after 43 and after 45. So just to like put you at ease here, there's nothing essential here that we're missing. It's, it's, was it added or not? The reality is, is it still there, whether it's in 44, 46, or 48? But that's why I wanted you to understand why your manuscript, may, your text may not have um, 44 and 46 in it. Here's what we see here as we look at sin's danger to, our, to ourselves. Um, I wanna first talk about the extreme danger. And what is the danger? It's repeated three times here. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell. It's repeated again in verse 46, 45, then to be thrown into hell. And again in verse 47, then to be thrown into hell. This Greek word here is the word Gehenna. It comes from the Hebrew, the valley of Hinnom. This is a valley where King Ahaz and Manasseh offered human sacrifices. Dr. Aiken in his commentary says this, the prophets proclaimed oracles of doom on it and Gehenna became a symbol of final judgment. So I don't have all the time to, to jump in there, but what we do have in verse 48 is a quote you may see that in your footnote. It is a quote from Isaiah 66, verse 24. Isaiah 66, verse 24. This, these are the last, this is the last verse in the book of Isaiah. And so in this section in Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet, in addition to talking about this new creation, this new heaven, he's also talking about God's final judgment. And he points them to this picture, this valley of Hinnom, which was known as like, as a place where they would throw corpses in, in a place that, you know, oracles of doom were on it. And, and so it's, here's what it's saying. He says this in Isaiah 66, and they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who've rebelled against me for their worm shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. And Jesus uses this to teach us about the reality of hell. And what we see here is this truth, that it is a place of unquenchable fire. In our statement of faith on the section of judgment, we say this, God has appointed a day wherein he'll judge the world by Jesus Christ when everyone shall receive according to his deeds. The wicked shall go into everlasting and conscious punishment and the righteous into ever, everlasting life. What makes hell so tragic? It's this. Hell is, e is eternal separation from God, from whom everything good flows. You know, one of the questions maybe that even you've wrestled with, is how can a God, how can a loving God send people to hell? In a recent book called Confronting Christianity, author Rebecca McLaughlin has a chapter, really good chapter on it. And, and here's, here's what she says. She says, here's what we, we can't do. We can't separate God's love, and at times we wanna elevate God as a God of love. You cannot separate God's love and God's judgment. 
Listen to her reflection here. She says, think of the anger you feel when you see school children shot, women raped, or people beaten because of the color of their skin. Think of your anger at the slave trade, the Holocaust, and global sex trafficking. When you analyze that anger, the root is love. And the more we love, the more easily our anger is kindled. We rush to defend our children from the least attack because we love them. Anyone who harms them inspires our fury. Do you see that? Like, God is a loving God. His wrath is flowing out of his hatred towards sin and his love. And so she continues, and I love it. She takes us to the cross and the gospel. She says, imagine that this kind of love, motivated anger, is so deeply entrenched in the heart of God that your own commitment to justice is just like a drop in the ocean. God's anger at the Holocaust, God's anger at the slave trade, God's anger at abuse and murder and cruelty and neglect was all poured out on Jesus on the cross. This was what Jesus dreaded, not the nails in his hands. So every evil of our hearts, this is the gospel, guys. Every evil of our hearts has been laid on him and paid for by his death. And each of his beautiful acts of love is credited to our account. We've all rejected God and his rejection in, and we deserve his rejection in return. The choice we have is this, to face hell by ourselves or to hide ourselves in Christ. To face hell by ourselves or to hide ourselves in Christ. You know, one of the common misbeliefs that I, that I see in New England is this thought that, that my good is gonna outweigh my bad. I, I think it's pretty consistent. In fact, like, I'll read, um, you know, I don't know if you ever just read about the news of somebody's death. I don't, I don't I like, do you ever hear somebody like, this person's in hell? No, like, you know, it, everything is gonna highlight what was good about them. But this is the reality. All of us deserve hell. Like Paul would say, I am the utmost of sinners. John Chastine deserves to face the wrath of God. The, the fact that God has saved any of us is pure grace. None of us deserve that. When you get to the fact that you were dead and you were chasing after, you were rebelling against God and that he's offered to completely forgive you, that's at the heart of the gospel. So the choice is between the king, kingdom of God, which is life, and unquenchable fire. And so the extreme danger, as John Bloom says, calls for extreme measures of escape. And what is the extreme metaphor that's given us here? He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Eyes would, would convey the things we see, 
The feet would convey the the places we go. The hands would convey the things we do. He's given us an all-inclusive picture of our lives. And, And if you were to like, Paul reflects in a similar way in Romans 6, where he talks about, do not present the members of your body as instruments for unrighteousness. When he says that word members there, he's talking about like the way we sin is we sin using our bodies. Like I can hit somebody, I can use my mouth to curse somebody, I can use my eyes to lust after, like like we use our bodies. Like they should not be instruments for sin, they should be instruments for righteousness. So the eye could, could covet or lust, the hand could murder, the feet could represent going somewhere to commit a sinful act. So what is Jesus not saying? I wanna go there first and then unpack like what is he saying? First of all, Jesus does not intend for anybody to cut off your hand, literally. If you cut off your hand, it will do you no good in pursuing holiness. Your hand sins not because of the muscles and nerves and tendons that are connected to it. You sin because of something so much deeper. So when we read a passage like this in the Gospels, like you don't just pull this out and read it by itself. Like, you, okay, Jesus, what else did you say about this? We would say, hey, Jesus would say, hey, you, you wanna know why the things that come out of your life, they flow from your heart. You say evil things because there's sinfulness in your heart. So here's our temptation. Since this isn't meant to be taken literally, our temptation is just to minimize, minimize what Jesus is saying altogether. And we can't do that. We can't discount or minimize the importance of these verses. So what does Jesus mean by this metaphor? And I wanna ask this question. How does what Jesus say here, says here connect with the, his life, death, and resurrection? And I believe it's this. Because of Jesus' perfect life and sacrificial death, I can be forgiven for my sin. The death of Christ cancels the record of debt that I go God. Amen, yes, can I get an amen? That's good news. Because none of us can pay that. The sin that, that I deserve to pay, past, present, and future, has been fully paid for in the death of Christ. My receiving of this forgiveness because of God's death should not lead me to now minimize sin but rather it empowers me to kill sin by the Spirit. And this is how Paul argues. I wish I could just walk through Romans 6, but but here's what Paul says. He says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Or he continues, for one who's died to sin has been set free from sin. And so he says, so you also consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God. So that verse I mentioned already earlier He says, so therefore, don't let sin reign in your body. Rather, present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members, your hands, your feet, your mouth, your eyes, the members of your body to God as instruments for righteousness. And then he jumps forward to Romans 8. And in Romans 8, Paul says a very clarifying couple of verses In Romans 8, 12, he says this, so we are therefore not debtors to the flesh. He says, you don't owe sin anything. You don't owe the flesh nothing. 
If you live according to the flesh, you will die. And that death there, he's not talking about physical death. He's talking about hell. If your life is continually characterized by a life chasing after sin, you will die. But he continues in verse 13. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. But if by the Spirit you put to death, and that put to death in the Greek there is not a one time, it is a, you make it your practice of killing sin. Put, that's where we get, we talk about killing sin. You put to death, you kill it. But if by the Spirit, your life is characterized by killing sin, you will live. That's what Jesus is saying here. It, if you don't cut off your hand, if you don't cut off your feet, if you don't cut off your, tear out your eye, if, if you don't get to the root of the sin in your life, you will not live. Now, how do we tie it to the gospel? What Jesus is teaching here is not mutilation, but mortification. A saving faith, as Aiken says, is a fighting faith. There is no room for passivity towards sin in our lives. So I've named one of my sons, Owen, and his middle name is John, after a guy named John Owen, who wrote measurably on the spirit and killing sin. And his famous quote is this, be killing sin or it will be killing you. And you get the, the point there. There's, there's no passivity there. You're either killing it or it's killing you. There's no like peace zone in the Christian life. And that's what Jesus wants us to see here. This is a radical picture of an assault and warfare against our own sin. We must consciously kill our sin, but the way we do it is it's spirit-empowered effort. Warfare on our own heart must be of the intensity of chopping off a hand and gouging out an eye. So I ask you, what is it in your life that is hindering you from running after God? What are, the, what are the sins in your life that are not fueling passion and joy from God? What in your life needs to be cut off? What habit needs to be cut off? What relationship needs to be cut off? What freedom in Christ needs to be cut off because it's tempting you to run into sin? What career needs to be cut off? off. Nothing should stand in the way of eternal life. So how do we do this? I'm going to give you another phrase here. Surrender daily to the leadership of the Holy Spirit. We surrender daily. If by the Spirit you put to death, this is not a one time, this is every day we surrender. I deny myself. Self-denial is the way to holiness. I surrender and the Holy Spirit is convicting me by his word. It's prompting me through the, the word that I've been meditating and memorizing and as it convicts me of sin, I surrender, I follow, I obey, I set my mind on what the Spirit wants. I gotta close this out here. Verse 49 and 50, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does this mean? Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. 
I've got to fly through this quickly, but here's what's, this is the only place that this shows up. And this, um, everyone's salted with fire. It's unique to Mark. So it must be significant for him. You hear of the salty language in Matthew, but this like everyone will be salted by fire is unique to Mark here. Most commentaries agree that the background to understand this is the temple sacrifice. So just write this as a footnote here. Go, go check out Leviticus 2.13. Um, and, and what you'll see here is that salt is called um, the salt of the covenant. And so when, it, when an offering was sacrificed, before it was... Con- totally consumed by fire, it was covered with salt. And salt is a picture of holiness. Go see Exodus 30, verse 35. And so here's what's happening here. For unbelievers, being salted with fire refers to the perpetual fires of judgment in hell. But for believers, the salt and fire are symbols of the refining trials and costs of discipleship that mark the road to true greatness. It's a picture of someone who follows Jesus as totally dedicated to God's service. It's, it's your life is, is a living sacrifice. That, that's the cost of discipleship. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow Jesus. And, 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 and in that, yes, I cut off a hand. I'm killing sin. And yet it's through that that I'm being refined, and that is the pathway to greatness. The sacrifice pleasing to God is the one who is servant of all, one who nurtures rather than destroys the faith of another, the one who forsakes everything to follow Jesus. Such a person is a living sacrifice. And so this type of disciple is a, is a salty disciple. I thought about putting the like, like be salty, but I wasn't sure how that would come across with you guys. But as I wrap up here, here's what happens. When we're salted with fire, salt is good, but salt is lot of saltiness. How will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What, what, what it produces is a life of a disciple that gives hope to the world. And so what, what Mark does here is he gives one specific example and application of good salt, and it's this, that disciples should be cultivating peaceful relationships. He chose one example. He's like, be at peace with one another. We build healthy relationships, and it starts with peace is the foundation of that. And so as I kind of just wrap this all together, here's the point that I want to leave you with. And this is the call of the follower of Christ. It's to deny yourself. Think about yourself less than Jesus more. This is at the heart of humble service, and this is what's going to help you kill sin. Because the problem with sin is I'm, I'm chasing John Chastain, not Jesus. And when Jesus becomes the main thing in my life, that's when I say no to the flesh. And by the Spirit, I'm empowered to kill sin. Here's what we're going to do here in a second. We're going to sing a response song. And then we're going to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so I would just say for you, during the Lord's Supper, you know, maybe God has just been convicting you today as you've been wrestling with, like, what is it that needs to be cut off? What is it? That, that you need to just attack with this, with this mentality to, to kill sin in your life that you may gain eternal life. Um, so so uh, that's gonna be a time to pray, to reflect. Um, and I wanna say just one more thing because one of my fears here is that you leave thinking that, man, this is a works-based pursuit to gain eternal life. And that's not what I'm saying. But 
but what I want to be careful to say is, is there's no room for somebody to say, I'm a follower of Jesus and I'm just going to go and, and not, not care about sin in my life. A true follower of Jesus is one who makes it their life of killing sin. I become in practice what God has made true of me in Christ. I kill sin because it's been killed through the death of Christ. Let's pray. Father, God, we thank you for your word, even these hard words and reflecting on service and the least of these. God, I pray that you would just search our hearts. God, I confess I'm, I'm still a prideful man in many ways, and I need you to crush pride in my life. God, I, I, wanna, I wanna be the one who's pursuing true greatness by being last of all and servant. So God, help me to serve in my home, in my church, in my city. God, I confess at times I can be lazy in my pursuit of killing sin. And yet, God, this has been a fresh reminder for me that there's no passivity there, that we're to make it our business. And, and yet, ironically, as we kill sin, this is where we find the greatest joy in knowing you. And so, God, I just pray, God, as you search our hearts, God, that, that, uh, that you would lead us in your perfect way. You would convict us of sin. God, that we, we wouldn't be resistant to where you're wanting to sanctify us, where you're wanting to make us more like Jesus. And God, that you would have your way. God, I pray for the person here who's maybe like, man, what is this dude talking about? Like cutting a hand off. Like, why? God, I pray for the person like just hearing about Jesus, that they would see that we're all sinners. And that the only hope of eternal life is to hide ourselves in Jesus. God, that they would run to you today. They would turn to you. They would believe in you. God, you would grant them life. God, we thank you. We pray for all this in Christ's name. Amen.